house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada water. himself in his own blood is it possible this is a message your grandfather left you he left us might be some kind of anagram can you break it demons omens codes monks da vinci professor langdon you're in grave danger from director ron howard sir lee tv robert what can i know cripple do for you I'm into something here that I cannot understand. You asked what will be worth killing for. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that learned how to signal SOS from watching Titanic. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, Chris File, and I'm here, as always, with not a prostitute, but actually my wife, <laughs> Joe Reed. My wife. Oh no! That was the original. Famously, the original. Famously, Jesus looked over at Mary yes. Magdalene and said, yes. "I'm my wife." At the Last Supper, uh, they said, "Jesus, who is that sitting to your right?" And he looked directly at the camera and said, "My wife." The Da Vinci Code is the wife, but about uh, Christianity. <laughs> what if the wife was uh, was Mary Holy Magdalene. Mother Church? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, da Vinci Code. This is going to be a weird one. This is this is it's. <laughs> It's a very different type of movie than we tend to talk about on, on uh, this podcast. Um, it's, it's, there's a lot going on in there. I will say, it's a long movie. It's two and a half hours, so I won't say that like I was riveted the entire time. But like, it's a very popcorny movie. Like, it's you know what I mean. Like, you can just sort of sit back and let the you know biblical Stale conspiracies popcorn. kind of wash all over you and it's just like just like solve anagrams for me tom hanks like just i will i will watch i will sit here <laughs> and i will watch tom hanks solve anagrams on the fly and and you you tell me what's going on movie cuz i don't I do really have know. to say i think it's the least compelling blockbuster of our lifetime i think I... That feels like a, a field of study that needs to be fully examined before we make claims like that. Because, Most uh, boring blockbusters. I just watched the other day on HBO Max, I watched the second Fantastic Beasts movie because I was like, I'm just curious to see where this story goes. And that, to me, is the least compelling blockbuster. Like, genuinely. It, it's also genuinely bad and, like, a full-blown mess. Yeah. Yes. They're just there. It doesn't know where its story is going. Doesn't really know what the important part of the story is. Things just tend to happen. There's like all this sort of like you know story lore going on that you're just like, what am I supposed to be paying attention to here? And it's all just so thoroughly listless and uncompelling. And I was just like, why? Why does this movie exist? At least the Da Vinci Code. The Da Vinci Code. I will also admit appeals to me in my. I am not, in general, a. I would not consider myself a particularly conspiracy-minded person. Uh, 
I joke sometimes that I'm like, uh, I, I, I worry that I would be cult susceptible, but that's mostly me joking. But I will say <laughs> that the two things that do get my conspiracy brain uh, going, where at the very least that I'm just like, well, no, that's not a conspiracy. That's like probably true, is uh, JFK assassination stuff and Mary Magdalene was married to Jesus stuff. Like, these are the two things that, like, really, that, like, I've... I thought you were going to say, like, Illuminati Catholic Church stuff. Nah, that stuff's fun to joke about and, and stuff like that, where it's just, like, there's probably, and there is probably a kernel of truth to all of this. Like, the Catholic Church has probably, you know, had some things where they've had, like, secret brotherhood meetings or whatever. Like, I don't think they're sure, running sure, the sure, world, sure, sure. but, like, they've given they've given the world reason to think, like, this kind of stuff is is uh, is probably true. Um, but I've I've done enough... I had enough college classes, which is what... Which is to say two, probably, that talked about the Gnostic <laughs> Gospels that I was just like, well, this is clearly true. This is clearly, obviously... Um, very true. And there's enough of the Da Vinci Code. It's it's very clear to see at what points the Da Vinci Code sort of like jumps the track into fantasticism. Um, but if you have me on a conversation where I've had enough wine, I'll just be like, listen, we have done wrong by this woman throughout history. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that kind of thing. So... In the same conversation that I will be like, it makes sense that the CIA would have hired Cubans to kill JFK. Like, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah. Those, the, for that reason, I'm wa- I can watch The Da Vinci Code and just be like, alright. like." So your Saturday afternoons are spent watching The Da Vinci Code and double featuring it with JFK. Well, I'll watch JFK whenever. Like, it doesn't have to be a weekend. I could be in the middle of, you know working on something i'll be like you know what i need to do for the next three hours is watch the director's cut of jfk and uh and uh (laughs) no regrets um but anyway so yeah so i'm probably a little bit more susceptible to something like i'm glad you brought up the whole like conspiracy theory ethos early into this episode because watching this movie this time which mind you (laughs) the first time i got my hands on it i accidentally got the extended (laughs) cut which is a full half hour longer than this nine hour movie i can't imagine what else fits into this like the hell is in there like more weird like overlaid uh you know history uh sequences it's just an entire uh annotated history of the knights templar like that's what you're getting it's just like a game of thrones spinoff book is in this movie yeah um, well, the thing that I found out, because I read the Wikipedia entry on the book, just to sort of see what was different, and the one main difference um, that I noticed in reading the description of the book, which is the the codex thing, the little cylindrical thing that the they have The little puzzle to, box thing, yeah, there's that they two. Have, yes, that in the book, they open the first codex, and inside it is a smaller codex, which is very much like... Uh, don't take off your wig on the runway unless you have another wig underneath it. Like that's of of Christian symbology. Like that's the Christian symbology where, where the, like, the Catholic Church is giving to giving it to you every ball. Or or the other thing is it's just like it's an infinite like ever more tiny codexes that you keep opening up or whatever. It's just, it's just until you get to like. The t- like one teeny tiny codex that's just like one yes. button. Yes, 
And then suddenly the Da Vinci Code becomes the box. And then and it's like if Tom Hanks presses that button, right. one Alfred Molina will be killed. Right, exactly, exactly. Um, but he figures out who the de- the last descendant of Jesus is. It's also very funny that this movie and and book uh, were called The Da Vinci Code, when like Da Vinci factors into like the first third of this movie at best, and then is like essentially just kind of like brushed aside like da vinci is is a red herring in this which is i guess appropriate well in the book isn't isn't it like tossed off like well of course da vinci was in these secret societies well they do that with they do that with isaac newton too it's just like clearly like the priory of scion has included throughout its history leonardo da vinci sir isaac newton pope john paul ii um martin scorsese mia farrow um katherine hepburn joe dimaggio uh you know (laughs) courtney kardashian but not the other kardashians like yeah just like it's yes yes, yes. um and um i don't know who's your favorite youtuber because this is my thing about the conspiracy (laughs) things this conspiracy theories of this movie yeah i'm like you know Almost 20 years removed, this would just be a weird YouTube rant, well, right? Like, not- this would just be some weirdo yes. in their basement recording this theory and putting it on YouTube. Not now. to be all, like, we used to be a real country about this and, like, the kids have ruined everything, but, like... Conspiracy. You had to really. You had to. You had to work a lot harder to be a conspiracy conspiracy theorist back in the day. You really had to do the full like basement laboratory, like giant wall of of clippings, and you know you had to be. You had to be the Charlie Day. Yes, always sunny. You had to be yeah. a real eccentric and 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 kind of like put in the work to be a conspiracy theorist back in the day. And nowadays, you're right, you can just start a YouTube channel and link to all the other conspiracy theorists and yeah, go on a Reddit thread. Now we have drama channels that become conspiracy theory channels. These armchair TikTok conspiracy theorists, they don't know what it used to take. They're not real ones. Um, yeah, no, you're exactly you right. You used to have to write a whole book series. Right. You used to have to, like... Have Tom Hanks take his curly hair through some type of science experiment to get what do we call this haircut? Oh, um, I mean, it's halfway between like, I don't, it's, it's, there's a lot going on with it because it is, it's, it's not a wig. They make a point of saying it in the article in EW, which we'll talk about, that it's not a wig. That Hanks' is sort of, like, natural curl to his hair, like, had to be essentially... Tom Hanks does say, I don't wear wigs, this is my hair. Yeah, uh, it has to be sort of, like, flattened out. So it's... There's... I... Not dissimilar to, like, a hot comb kind of a thing situation, where it's just, like, we're really right. just sort of, like, artificially straightening out its hair. And it's not like it's long and luxurious. It's not like it's, like, it's just sort of, like, I don't know. It doesn't look... It's like Michael appealing. Douglas, but, like, the hairline is, like, two inches back. Right. Well, that, too. Yeah, it does look like everything has just been sort of, like, pulled back into uh, uh, stress positions or something. I'm so glad that they bring it up in the EW interview. Yeah. Because I was like, the hair was a thing. Yes. Right? Yes, it was. The hair was a thing. Very much so. And they do confirm it was indeed a thing. 
Tom Hanks with medium long hair. It's funny that there was such a degree of secrecy around this movie as well, because like the hair kind of was the thing we talked about because they weren't really telling anything about the movie, which is funny because the book was right there and it doesn't really change anything from the book materially. It's not like it like, so I'm, I'm not entirely sure. I guess their, their point was, you know, there's a lot of people who are going to watch this uh, movie who haven't read the book, which is true, but I don't know. They could just ask a friend who'd read the book or something. Were there a lot of people that saw this movie that didn't read the book? The movie was a blockbuster. It made a shit ton of money, but it didn't make that much money. Yeah, but I think in general, I think you're, you're, the scale of a successful movie versus a successful book, like, it's, it's still way more people that see a movie than read books. Like, I, I, I can't imagine I mean, we fair. are, we're that much of a reading country in this uh, in this here nation, but uh, I can't imagine the that portion of this movie's audience uh, got what the big deal was about because this movie is very boring. <laughs> I mean, yes and no. I I it it's in constant motion. I will say so. There is a there is a veneer of action to this where they're like constantly going from one place to another and then you get to the mckellen part and then it's like info dump which to me i appreciate a good exposition dump i know i i know there's a lot of people who sort of sneer at that and look down upon that and whatever but to me i'm just like just like tell me shit like tell me information like give me just unload it on me and particular in particular if you can have it be done via a sort of mellifluous movie star voice a kate blanchett in the beginning of the lord of the rings for example um so much the better so to have ian mckellen just sort of go on and on about uh, Jesus and Mary Magdalene and, and symbology and whatnot. I'm just like, yeah, hit me with that. That's good. That's fine. Um, it's much more interesting than in the book, which, like, it was... Uh, had you read the book? The... Oh, at the time, yeah. Yeah, yeah? I had. And yeah. I was like, okay. Because um, <laughs> everybody was freaking out about it. Right. The thing is, the book, it was interesting reading the uh, the little mini Akiva Goldsman interview in mm. uh, in EW and how he talks about how hard it was to like adapt it and like give this thing a shape basically right it's because every chapter in the book is like two pages long yeah so it's like every single tidbit of information or like slight development like Robert Langdon walks into the bathroom <laughs> that is a chapter <laughs> in the book so it's like. This whole info dump section that you're talking about, from what I remember in the book, it was like that whole thing that plays out in a scene in the movie is multiple chapters. like 200 pages. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I don't think it's 200 pages. This is not a big book. Right. But it's like, Jesus, get on with it. Like the way that it's so choppy. And that's, I think, why people got so invested in this book is that it's very easy. Like it's so baked into the structure of it, of what a page turner is, that it's like, well, you read one page. Right. You gotta figure out what the it's a literal, yeah, very literal definition of a page turner. You also get get stuff. Any more information, you have to read another two page chapter. Right. You also get stuff in the movie where, like, we are 
were asked to invest more in things like the relationship between Alfred Molina's character and Paul Bettany, which ultimately doesn't matter. Like, Alfred Molina's character doesn't really need to exist in this movie. I imagine maybe that's... Neither does the Paul Bettany one. It is just, like, window dressing, like... Yeah, but at least I mean, I guess he like kills the guy. Yeah, like he's you gotta have your all this red herring for what the actual villain of the movie is, and by the end of it, it's like. But that's legitimate. Why people with albinism were pissed off about this character because he doesn't even do anything. I that's I forgot about that. The people were mad about that character. Yeah, yeah. Gosh. The He's con- basically the just BDSM window set dressing. Yeah, but like that's a thing. That's a thing in movies. Like red herrings exist, and and that's fine. I don't mind that. I don't mind. You know, I I think a character. I think the problem with the Bettany character is we're supposed to invest in like his Bane esque backstory, where he was like. <laughs> kept in a prison and taunted by people and whatnot, and then saved by this one kindly uh, Opus Dei uh, Monsignor or whatever. But ultimately, all of that comes to nothing. Also, we're supposed to invest probably more in the Jean Renault character than I think we need to, where he's, you know, he's part of Opus Dei. Why do we care? Like, why does that matter? He ends up feeling betrayed by Alfred Molina, who gives a shit, like that kind of thing. It's like, maybe mm-hmm. that... It made more sense in the book, or not made more sense, but like felt more, uh, you know, satisfying, I guess, in the book. Well, it's also like uh, kind of stretching the movie thin on a character basis because all of this like stuff that feels so superfluous with all these other characters surrounding, you know, the actual leads of the story. Yeah kind of obscures and masks that these are not interesting characters as our protagonists. Like, it, it was kind of like, I felt like I was being actively gaslit read this ar- reading this article with, like, what uh, Tom Hanks and Ron Howard were saying about Robert Langdon as if there's an actual character there. Like, they reduce yeah. the character down to, like, the, the haircut... And the story like, about him falling down a well is very tacked on, I will say. Like, it feels right. very much like, why Why are we getting flashbacks to him, like, at the, at the bottom of a well to explain his claustrophobia, to explain, like, it just, it all feels external to Even to the, the like, baseline level thing of why is it a big deal that Tom Hanks was playing this character? Because it was a big deal. It was like... I mean, I guess it's like he's one of the biggest movie stars in the world yeah. at that point, and like this was a prime property, but it's like not even on the page is this character interesting. There's just not a lot to go on. I will say, Hanks does, casting Hanks does help with that in that you're not really, you're not watching Robert Langdon, you're watching a Tom Hanks character, and then you are able to invest. You're sort of, you know, by the transitive property of you being interested in Tom Hanks, you're interested in this. I think it is fun to watch him sort of, like I say, like, solve anagrams on the fly. Like, he makes that compelling because it is Tom Hanks and he's, you know, a very good actor and he's a very good movie star. And I think that helps a great deal. I think you couldn't have done the Da Vinci Code with an actor of much... Like, you couldn't drop too far down the list of, you know, A-lister before you get to a point where it's not really 
interesting enough. You know, your star presence is not really enough to carry this character. Not that I think it would be any more interesting, though I was a little fascinated that it wasn't Russell Crowe, or that Russell Crowe didn't get an offer for it, or at least one that's been discussed publicly, because it is kind of in a beautiful mind reunion. Sure, yeah. Though, like, at this point, I don't... This would have been post-phone, so he might not have been like right, right. a viable option at that point. I'm not I sure. think it's a less I think it's a less effective uh, casting decision if it's Russell Crowe. Like personally. No, I agree. I don't think he I just thought like no, totally. of the the team involved sure. it may, it's curious sure. that like he wasn't, you know, bandied about as a name. The one that Ron Howard's first choice who apparently wasn't available or something, I actually think is kind of brilliant and it would have been bill paxton see like you absolutely could invest in him like solving puzzles and you know i don't there's something about bill paxton's screen presence that like of its own in a movie like twister where he is also not playing a character yeah he is still like easy to get invested in yeah but i think twister works because there's a twister i don't think twister works because it's bill paxton if that makes any sense do you know what i mean like i mean I, yeah i, I don't see think, what you're saying i don't I think there's think a twister like, we're not like fuck yeah twister if it's not you know actors we can invest in yeah. too otherwise it, there's a lot of other spectacle movies like that sure sure sure, sure. this sound all sounds like i'm shitting on tom hanks and i'm not trying to do that i'm just like there's not enough for him to really do yeah here like i don't know i think like one of the most charismatic natural actors i just i i don't know i think i ended up liking this movie more than you did i think is what we're sort of arriving at at this point um oh okay <laughs> Um, which is not to say that I loved it, but like it's it's a fine movie. I think it's fine. Um, with a lot of sort of like funny things about it that I that I at least sort of appreciate the fact that uh, um, oh, I will get into it in the plot description. I'm very fascinated by the McKellen character and his relationship to Mary Magdalene in this is what I will say. Um, should we talk about? Yeah, he is part of the uh, the. The Mary Magdalene, like, hive. He's, like, a full-on stand for Mary Magdalene. Oh, we'll get into it, for sure. Um, do we want to talk about <laughs> the EW issue, though, uh, before we get into the movie itself? How, how we did last week with Panic Room? Or should yeah, we do let's a... do it. So, right. yeah. guys, we're doing a main miniseries on Entertainment Weekly's movie preview covers. We've moved from spring, last episode, into summer. We're talking about The Da Vinci Code which had Tom Hanks on the cover for the summer movie preview in like, we at least spent five minutes talking about fonts last episode. (laughs) This cover always struck me as in like, it makes you think that he's like playing the Riddler or something. It's a very Batman (laughs) forever, like color story. Like why is there purple and green for the Da Vinci code? It's a good question. I'm looking at the cover of the magazine. Um, which is, we should mention, from it's a double issue. This is the summer preview, so it gets a double issue. April 28th and May 5th, 2006, uh, touting 114 new releases this summer that they're going to get into. Uh, da Vinci Code gets the cover story, of course, and then the two insets are 
Jennifer Aniston from The Breakup, and Hugh Jackman as Wolverine from X-Men 3. The summer of 2006, as we are going to discover when we sort of thumb through this issue, is a real cursed summer in terms of oh yeah big projects that were touted highly and ended up falling flat either commercially or critically. The box office champ was the second Pirates of the Caribbean movie, which was actually the movie that kind of had more people skeptical that it could be a success because was you know was the first one such a lightning in the bottle kind of a movie and it -hmm. was up against a new superman movie and the next x-men movie and a big pixar movie and uh the the da vinci code itself you know this big acclaimed uh adaptation of a novel with tom hanks and ultimately it's pirates of the caribbean dead man's chest that ends up being i'm pretty sure box office champ of that whole year right Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. We'll get into this, like, box office prediction that EW did for this summer. They predicted it to make $200 million, and I think it made that something, like, in its first week. Yeah, it was a huge—it was one of those movies that, like, people were incredibly surprised by what a big opening weekend it was uh, for this one. I think it it set— set records and it was it was really something but yeah summer 2006 is um there's just a lot of weird stuff in here and some good stuff but the good stuff is actually like the more sort of offbeat kind of oscar-y stuff kind of i mean devil Mm -hmm. wears prada uh, and little miss sunshine are both in this summer and those would end up going to uh, oscar success to various degrees um, I was. We talked in the last one that there was like the the actual eventual best picture nominee was like tucked away. You know, the actual Oscar movies were tucked away in the movie preview, and the Little Miss Sunshine stuff in this issue is like all about Steve Carell, and it's like, isn't it funny that Steve Carell is playing a Proust scholar? That's like the thrust of the movie. Yeah, <laughs> it it was a reminder to me where I'm still kind of like just incredibly puzzled that they couldn't make a Carell nomination happen. Obviously, going for the Arkin thing paid off, and like they, I guess, knew better than me. But Carell's so good in that movie. For as much as his movie career has tended to disappoint me as much as in probably in equal measure at his, as it has impressed me. Uh, that one in particular, I just love his performance in that movie. I feel like the thing about that performance is the same thing with like Greg Kinnear and Tony Collette in that there's some hesitancy or confusion over like who was the lead of that movie and who was supporting and Arkin. It's very easy to kind of latch on to as a supporting contender because he's so obviously supporting on top of having like, yeah, one of the bigger like emotional connections for, I think that's uh, probably people, the but biggest he's one. Like, yeah. Whereas like yeah. Carell's obviously, he's obviously supporting because he dies. <laughs> right. But like Carell is also obviously supporting. It's like it's Kinnear and Colette, I think you're right, are the ones who sort of walk that line. Um Yeah, but the thing was at the time, like he was the biggest movie star, so they were hesitant to call him supporting too. I guess. I suppose. Um all right. So before we get into the preview preview portion of this issue, there was a lot of this was also the summer where we got the two big 9-11 movies. Uh-huh. Uh, finally, Hollywood was ready to... There was a lot of sort of talk about when would 
we get the 9-11 movies in a kind of like quasi-crass way and for a while there of just like how are they going to turn this thing into movies and you know there was a lot of like too soon talk and ultimately it only took five years so we have these two big movies uh united 93 and world trade center both coming out in the same summer and there was a lot of talk of should these movies exist and weirdly more of it was Mm -hmm. on United 93 than World Trade Center. For whatever reason, I think the fact that World Trade Center wasn't happening on one of the planes, that it felt more, I don't know, that there was enough of a a remove from the actual acts of violence or something. I don't know. I don't know. Well, in World Trade Center, uh, United 93 happened first like it was i think the last week in april in this issue it has the like big review slot right and lisa schwartzbank is at an a minus uh we love lisa um yeah all en route to a it, director nomination for green grass at the oscars this mm-hmm. year yeah well but like also united 93 is much more of a realistic movie whereas right. world trade center is a the, hollywood like melodrama weepy movie right right but anyway, that was a big deal, the 9-11 movies. Um, it's interesting to sort of look back on it because United 93 ultimately was successful in, in that it, you know, Oscar nominations and, and very well-reviewed. World Trade Center was less well-reviewed, but it also wasn't um, sort of held up as this, like, crass, awful thing. I think World Trade Center was allowed to just sort of you know, fade into obscurity a little bit. Mm-hmm. And now nobody talks. Yeah, about nobody that ever movie. really talks about that movie. People are more likely to talk about the secret 9-11 movie. Remember oh, me. <laughs> yes. And by first people, you get mean, the verite uh, realistic uh, 9-11 movie. Then you right. get the melodrama 9-11 movie. And eventually you get stealth 9-11. You get movie. stealth 9-11. All right. Um, you wanted to talk about the hit list, Scott Brown's hit list for uh... Scott Brown's hit list, which basically kind of replaced the Shaw report. The Shaw report is tucked away into a tiny little corner with one joke. And like Scott Brown's hit list was like meaner. Yeah. Well, it's sort of it's it's um it's a descendant of the the Mullen report, right? Which also was just like mm-hmm. set up and then joke. And this one, it's just like set up and then pot shot kind of. And yeah. It's no it's it's no better. What were the the uh topics this year? Lindsay Lohan, we'll take a we'll take a shot at Lindsay Lohan, we'll take a shot at Frankie Muniz. Um Michael Jackson. Yeah, oh, well, yes. Um there's this one that just says pink petitions against KFC, which I don't recall that being a thing. Um, but okay. And then there's a thing about David Spade was dating Heather Lockler, which I do kind of remember at the time that everybody was like, what? What is happening there? Nobody could really figure it out. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so our beloved Shaw report gets the smallest possible 
placement on the next page where it's like it's only one little in the shower report is the one that was like in five minutes ago out so it's like normally you'd get like three or four uh trios of uh of things that were in five minutes ago out this one was all about celebrity scandals so it was like the anthony palacano thing which like i barely remember he was a I don't remember. I genuinely don't remember the Anthony Pelicano thing, other than I remember the name. Um, but the the punchline of this was James Fry, which was the Million Little Pieces author who had like just recently been discredited. Which leads us into the Augustine Burroughs thing, where we get a one-pager with Augustine Burroughs talking about the upcoming Running With Scissors movie and stressing very strongly that everything in his memoir was true and accurate and happened, which we did that movie a few months ago. And I think fair to say we were both a little dubious <laughs> as to how much of that was, uh, was legitimately true. Much as I loved that book. What else from the CW issue that did we want to spotlight? Uh, to actress thing spotlight there's like a career retrospective interview that's not very long with angela bassett um and then there's the you might know me from block for melanie linsky and it's like we have been beating this drum for decades this is the thing and she's finally getting her due people have been doing the same like uh remember melanie linsky she's been great in so many things like that kind of thing has been happening for legitimately 15 years and it's because she's just like she just kept putting in the work she kept putting in the work in these like small you know material yeah performances that people remembered and yeah now finally which is why which is what made that uh this yellow jackets uh, run for her so satisfying because it really has been like two decades or more of her just like nailing it nailing it nailing it and you know, she was the real ones no uh, patron saint, basically, forever. Like, if you were a real one, you knew you knew what the deal with with Melanie Linsky was. So, um, yeah, it's funny to see that that kind of a sidebar in this. What was she? What was her new project that we were touting? Two and a half men. Right, right. She had shown up on Two and a Half Men. She was his like obsessed. She's the one who ends up like killing him, right? Stalking him. But isn't something. isn't that how he ends up dying? Doesn't she like push an air conditioner onto his head or something? They did like it. They know. went that dark. I don't know. I I didn't watch Two and a Half Men, Chris. I hate to break into it's, you. I mean, same. Um, what else? What else? The must list. The must list, which is in there, which I kind of forgot, was like basically uh this is what you should spend your money on right. because it's like the number one thing on the must list. This one is a Marlena Dietrich dvd box set sure. and the second is a dvd of moonstruck this was um, the time and then this it's was, like yeah yeah it was like no reservations so it's like you should be watching no reservations blah blah blah, blah. um there's also at the very end when ew would be reviewing theater there's a review of julia roberts I broadway debut that. yeah in three days of rain opposite both paul rudd and Bradley Cooper, the review refers to Bradley Cooper, and I quote, as a great golden retriever of a man. Um, yeah. It's funny. Uh, and, like, I remember this being, like, 
this review is much kinder than like all of the other reviews at the time because it was such a big deal that Julia Roberts was yeah. going to be on Broadway and then like the reviews were just savage to her. But the one who got the good reviews was the one who wasn't famous right. and it was Bradley Cooper, which like Bradley Cooper had been in things before, but like right. Paul Rudd this was even post had, like, wedding you know, crashers for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. Paul Rudd the, is the one who actually yes. If you look at Paul Rudd from a today perspective, he's almost the one that feels the most unusual for Broadway, like even more so than Julia Roberts, who oh yeah, like Julia's like you know probably too big a star for Broadway, or at least too big a star to sort of be able to operate on Broadway uh, in any degree of quietness. You know what I mean? Where like mm-hmm. it's always going to be such a big deal. It's also funny that they mention her struggle with a southern accent, which is one of the most fascinating things about Julia Roberts is that she's originally from Georgia and keeps attempting southern accents and keeps delivering just these baffling things. Like <laughs> Steel Magnolias was the one thing, but like like she's currently in Gaslit playing Martha Mitchell as this sort of like Arkansas you know, uh, celebutant, essentially, like sort of just this, you know, great uh, Washington personality who was all in the media. And she's sort of a society girl from from Arkansas originally. And she very similar to kind of what she was doing with a Texas accent in uh, Charlie Wilson's war, where it's just like, where is this coming from? I don't understand it. And uh, it's funny that that's sort of been one of the constants in Julia's career. We'll certainly be talking plenty about Julia Roberts in the rest of this uh, miniseries, so we don't really need to linger on her too much. But anyway, um, the Stephen King closing column, I forgot about those days. Which man. I had fully forgotten that he did that for, for years. For years, for a very long time. And it was this same Was column. he replaced by the bullseye? I think like when he stopped doing it was that when the bullseye took over. Perhaps. That's perhaps. There was also didn't Joel Stein do an end column for a while? I feel like there was there was Maybe. they 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 kind of cycled through a lot of it, but Stephen King was that closing column for a while and it was the same kind of thing of like he'd just pick a topic and then just do the whole, you know, old Uncle Steve thing about it and you know, just this aggressively... Yeah, this issue, it's about morning shows. Right. It's just like, they just let Stephen King talk about morning TV. Yeah, who he likes, who he doesn't. He doesn't, he's not a huge fan of Katie Couric or the Today Show. He really likes the CNN uh, morning news program. And uh, I don't know, he takes a pot shot at Nancy Grace, which is actually kind of good and fun. So, um, yeah, it's real interesting. Not interesting. It's it's an odd curiosity of history that we've that we spent so long just sort of letting Stephen King uh, pontificate on pop culture. Let's talk about the box office predictor. The actual though. summer movie preview. This box office predictor in the summer movie preview, I was so excited to see it because I love this kind of our you know, the hindsight perspective that we are taking on these EW issues. They they went to the point of trying to predict the summer box office. Little did they know that nearly two decades later, a pissant little podcast like ours would hold their feet to the fire <laughs> in terms of how accurate they were. This was also a- They do well, though. They do pretty well. Yes, except if you look at it, they almost, to a, to a film, 
overestimate everything because almost all of these movies were either financial disappointments or critical disappointments, like to one degree or another. Even I would say the one that is remembered best, which is Mission Impossible 3, was at the time viewed as a big disappointment. Like that movie has been kind of rehabbed through the years. I really love that movie. I think it's one of my favorite Mission Impossible movies up there with Ghost Protocol. Same. Um, But at the time, like they predicted it for 260 million and it came in at 134. And also the reviews were kind of middling. So, uh, and that's the best. This is before Tom Cruise turned the Mission Impossible franchise into his personal death wish. Yes. What's the name? What's the name of the upcoming one? It's like Mission Impossible 7. Please kill me. Right. Like he Tom Cruise desperately wants to die on screen. He that's what these have become it, a vessel for. It does seem to be his greatest wish that he eventually will uh attempt a stunt so incredibly impressive that he will die while doing it and be uh, enshrined forever. Uh Yes. Yeah. Yes. I don't know what the subtitle of it actually is, but uh it's like death wish or basically, something. Basically. Yes. Um, they predicted 300 million for Superman Returns, the Brian Singer directed, Brandon Routh starring Superman Returns, which ended up bringing in 200 million dollars and was a big old disappointment. Brought in 200 million dollars when everyone hated it. Everybody hated it. Yep, that's another one where you'll find it's a smaller pocket of people who will sort of stick up for Superman Returns. But I think as it's like. Like, your morning newspaper on the stoop, uh, as reliable as that, is uh, the fact that you will find a pocket of people to stick up for a poorly regarded blockbuster movie. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, anything right. that really just, like, an, a really auteur-driven uh, flop, you know, your Ang Lee's Hulk, your uh, anything that tried to do something different with a superhero genre, and it flopped people are going to ride for that movie even a little bit. And so I think you find that. I mean, that this Superman movie didn't Returns. really try to do anything different though. It just tried it to said, do Superman what if when Superman, Superman wasn't cool but anymore. So boring. Like what if like and that's like, so yeah, yeah, long, not a lot of action sequences. What if and, Superman was just real sad and like disconnected from the world? What if we made a movie about that? What if that? Superman had a crush on Lois Lane? Right, and she was dating Josh Lucas? Who was she dating? Who was her, that like... That seems right. Right? Doesn't that seem to track? I don't know. Don't correct that me. That seems quite possible. Also, this summer, X-Men The Last Stand, which... Ugh, that fucking movie. Disaster. Brett Ratner jumped in, decided to uh, to rescue the X-Men movie after Brian Singer ditched it for... Uh, Superman, and just farted out this. The first time that the <laughs> that the Phoenix saga was ruined in an X Men movie was Brett Ratner in X Men: The Last Stand. God, every time I I if I find that movie on TV, I'll be like, maybe this is the time I'll find something in this movie that, and it's just like, no, every single time it just makes me so mad. Ugh. They predicted that one fairly accurately. They predicted 240 million. It came in at 234. So, uh, I guess good for them. They also pretty accurately predicted cars, actually. Yeah. They predicted 235. It got 244. Cars, though, is also like the Pixar movie nobody liked. So, 
Um, it lost the animated feature to Happy Feet that year. It was so, uh, so disliked. It takes a lot. It took a lot, especially at that point in history for a Pixar movie to lose best animated feature. And it did. Um, you're right. A lot of these, a lot of these predictions were pretty close. They predicted 225 for Da Vinci Code and it came in at 217. They, dramatically underpredicted Pirates of the Caribbean 2, but most people did. They predicted, as you said, 200 million and it came in at 423, mm-hmm. but boom. Yeah. Um, you mentioned at the top that like it was coming out, you know, a week or two after Superman, which Superman was like the 4th of July movie, opened opposite De- Devil Wears Prada. And like it's interesting that like the two movies it was positioned against, Devil Wears Prada and Pirates 2 are overperform and I think it's likely because people didn't really even want a Superman movie. Right. And then the one that they got, they hated. Yeah. Yes, I think that's right. Modern audiences' relationship with Superman has been a fraught one. Like, it just feels like in many ways that modern audiences stopped knowing how to take Superman, a superhero that everybody who wants to make a movie about Superman and be faithful to it, like, has to stick to this ethos of him being, like, the most... Like, it's the most regimented view of a superhero ever, where you really cannot stray from the core tenets and principles, to the point where... Remember how everybody fully freaked out at Man of Steel for having Superman kill kill someone kill general zod and they're like you can't have superman kill somebody and i'm like listen like i do not have a dog in this fight but like it's really wild how people are freaking out about one like i don't know it's it's it was weird to me people were really really one in a million when there'll be a million more superhero movies about this like one character detail whatever yeah but like no you're talking that fraught like relationship to modern culture with superman becomes basically text for the Zack snyder movies where it's like superman is not just you know fighting bad guys superman is also fighting against our cultural darkness right like uh, that makes Superman not cool, right? You know, it's right. like super. The, it's about like, yeah, him. Superman being the embodiment of like optimism and us fighting against optimism. It's it's awful. funny. <laughs> it's for as much as the Zack Snyder and sort of the the DC uh, superhero movies of this era are not good and are and are obnoxious in the way that they are presented and also received by uh, their fans. There is something a little bit fascinating about that to me, about that characterization where how they've decided to depict Superman, how they decided that in those movies that Batman was just going to be like old and grumpy, that like Aquaman, who is the most sort of modern depiction of a superhero in those, in that he's like, the fun, cool one. And all of a sudden, unsurprisingly, Aquaman is the one that like modern critics seem to really like. You know what I mean? That like Aquaman mm-hmm. was the one that got the kind of uh backlash to the backlash, where all of a sudden people are like, no, Aquaman's good. And you watch Aquaman and you're like, no, the movie isn't. But like Aquaman, the character, I get why people like that character. And I why people like Momoa's sort of take on that character. But yeah, yeah, 
I don't know. The next movie on their box office predictions is the one that made me want to like talk about this. Yeah. They predict over the hedge for 175 million. And when I saw that I was like, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa. Wasn't over the hedge like some huge bomb that made like 50 million dollars." And no, it made 150 million dollars. Yeah. And like looking back at it through this issue, it basically made that money on the backs of from the studio that bought brought you Shrek. Right, exactly. Here's the thing. Like, nobody knows what Over the Hedge is anymore. No. here The thing about Over the Hedge, and so we've been doing box office game on... Uh, on the internet every day, right? The the Wordle for box office, essentially, where you try and guess. They give you a date, they give you studios, um, they give you the box office take, and then you have to guess what the five movies at the top five of the box office was. Um, incredibly addictive. I do it every morning. Um, it probably affects my day more than it should, how well or how poorly <laughs> I do at box office game. But my absolute kryptonite is animated movies of the aughts and teens because it's this kind of stuff if it's a walt disney pixar thing i will usually be pretty good about remembering what was from what year and what was a summer movie versus maybe a november movie or something like that but once you get into uh any other animated movies over the franchise like all the all the ice ages all of the despicable me's and minions and then you get this kind of movie where it's like over the hedge or open season or flushed away or um uh monsters versus aliens or secret life of pets or all these things that like some of which made a ton of money rise of of the guardian it's all in the same soup to me and i genuinely it's it really reminds me that like so many animated movies that are not uh, either Disney Pixar or on the other side of it, like Studio Ghibli, uh, G Kids, like, you know, critically acclaimed uh, animated features. There's that vast middle of like f- movies that parents will just take their kids to because it's an animated movie and they can plop their kid down in front of it. All those movies which make money. And I cannot for the life of me, I just realized that like I just have shut those movies out of my attention span almost entirely they just like don't exist for me and maybe that's a failing of me but like also does it am i I the worst for never seeing open season or over the hedge or nomeo and juliet or you know what i mean like probably not i'm probably fine i don't know am i bad for that (laughs) no i mean like these are movies that like because we don't have children, they're not real movies. They're they are fictional movies. Yeah, yeah. I think that's probably true. I think it's probably a very very different story if you are a parent with children. And listen, you know, no judgment. Live your life. We're gonna get listeners who have kids who are gonna be like, "Over oh, the hedge is great." Blah 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 blah. Like, I believe yeah. you. Sure, absolutely, do it. Also, if you could, t- this the other thing is, you could tell me that there were two over the hedge movies or 10 over the hedge movies and i would have no way of knowing which one was more likely to be correct (laughs) like where on that spectrum we could be in the middle of you know the great over the hedge uh cinematic universe and i would have no idea wasn't over the hedge also one of those animated movies that like a year or two before or after there was one that was like vaguely similar about animals fighting so it's also blurring into like that is always a thing 
Yeah. Too, right? Like, yeah. Well, I feel like it also blurs into some other movie. It's all some... The next movie yeah. on this box office prediction, such a bomb that, like, you can't even mention this movie on a plane. It's huh. such a bomb. Uh, the Poseidon remake. Right. Oscar nominee, Poseidon. So Poseidon is one of the movies that gets a full page photo in the in the summer movie preview, right? And yes. it's Josh Lucas and our fave, Jacinda Barrett, who... Yes, Poseidon is Jacinda Barrett's cinema. Yes. It's also Fergie's cinema. Oh, 100%. There is... In in the great, I mean, you talk about the Louvre. When the Louvre does their exhibit on Fergie cinema, um, it'll be nine and Poseidon and probably nothing else. But like, that's was fine. she in a scary movie? Was she? Maybe like the franchise scary movie. Right? Did she make a cameo? I don't know. Seems feasible. You talk about Poseidon for a second. I want to look up and see who Jacinda who. What character she played from the original. Hold on. Poseidon. Okay, so Poseidon eventually gets the visual effects nomination. And, like, they do actually do some cool visual effects with it in terms of, like, you know, doing this, like, wide circling tracking shot around the boat while Josh Lucas is running. But, like, it, it, it overestimates how much of a place the Poseidon adventure has in the culture that it thinks we might want another one of these movies. But it's also, like, incredibly grim about, you know, rich people drowning on a boat. Um, Kurt Russell is, like, the disapproving dad of, I think, Emmy Rossum? I think that's right. She is in the cast list here. It's like, nobody really wanted it. That May was weird, because, like, Mission Impossible 3 opens, disappoints. Poseidon, I think, followed it next. It's May 12th, so I would assume that Mission Impossible was, like, the summer opener. Yeah, that's probably true. So it's like, I don't think there was really a hit until X-Men, which was also really bad. That May is is weird. This is a very cursed summer. It's an incredibly cursed summer, as I said. Like, 2006 in general, I remember just being... And maybe it's because it was an odd transitional year for me. I was getting ready to move to New York City the next year. and um, But I remember that just being, like, a very... Just an odd... I don't know. An odd year. Sorry, I'm still trying to look up who... Uh, who Jacinda what other was playing Fergie movies? No, oh no, God no. No, Fergie is a Fergie's a two movie um a two movie superstar. Let's see. Uh I don't know who Jacinda played. Anyway, the Poseidon Adventure is a weird movie, and like the original one, I mean, like worth watching if you catch it on cable. Anyway. Uh anything else we wanted to to pick out from the actual uh, there was a lot of uh, focus on Lady in the Water this year, I will say. Uh, yes, this summer. Bryce Dallas Howard gets an interview. It was like 
the thing was, they're like, it's a mystery. We don't really know what the movie is. But in the preview, they use the word narf, which is like, the, once you get to narf, you got it all. There's not much narf more and the movie. scrunch. And like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, those yeah. are your. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and M. Night Shyamalan says that, like, the movie is a fairy tale. It's not a horror movie. And it's like, that's the gist of it. But, like, people were still so hostile to it. It's so funny like, to me. The, the article makes this big deal of. Um, oh, are we ready for a M. Night Shyamalan movie that's not a horror movie? They say, he says it's a fairy tale. It says not a horror movie. And it's so funny to me that now I think of like, all M. Night Shyamalan movies sort of seem like fairy tales. Even the ones that are very horror inflected, right? Like it's, it's weird Mm -hmm. that there was this perceived hostility or, um, uh, unfamiliarity with the idea of M. Night Shyamalan doing a movie that was that he described as a fairy tale. And by the way, there are horror elements to the to Lady in the Water. Like there's not like it there's still like Yeah, the scrunts are scary. Scary wolf wolves made of hedges or whatever that are like coming after her. But his kids movie scary. Of like course. he made one of those like kind of scary movies that were for children that happened a lot more in the 80s and 90s that like never happened and people just didn't want to see it as that and that's why they partly why i think people hate that movie. but you look at something like like, no you do get the sense now you can look on it and you can see like what the tenor is around the anticipation of this movie that like i don't think we realized at the time is that the village was not seen positively. It opened really well and then like bombed out afterwards because like the word of mouth on it was bad. And I think, you know, vibes around that movie have changed since whatever. But like this was ultimately like the make or break movie for him at the time. And that like, well, it has to be better than the village, but it turns out people hated it 10 times more than they hated the village so like it ultimately was the like kind of break it movie for him for i have a long plenty while. of problems with the village and i think the village is another movie that like a lot of people will be like you know the village is a masterpiece and i'm like you are up your own butt but um <laughs> there's a lot of there's a, that's a lot of emotion for me but i love the village there's a lot of good stuff about the village but like lady in the water is the one where i watch that and i'm like this motherfucker is off his chain like this movie is so obnoxious to me i genuinely find lady in the water to be like an incredibly obnoxious movie and um and not because it's a fairy tale and not because but like this like the fact that lady in the water ultimately ends up being about how if we just would leave m night Shyamalan alone he would save the world with his stories (laughs) um which is super annoying i don't like that part of the movie but like i i will defend lady in the water but it's funny to me but like that that is bad the bob balaban stuff is bad yes it is it's very bad and every single here's the thing and i don't think i don't think you solve that like m night Shyamalan can save the world with his stories thing if it's not if it's a different actor than m night Shyamalan in that role i think it's still the problem with that movie right exactly but But it exacerbates it that it is him in the role um but what I was trying to say, though, was, like, you look at something like Unbreakable, where Unbreakable is a sort of, you know, dark uh, drama with horror elements, but it also is ultimately a comic book story. And you look at Signs, which is a scary movie about aliens, but there is also something sort of 
you know, storybooky about it. So it's like, it's odd to me that you get Lady in the Water and they're like, oh, wow, an M. Night Shyamalan fairy tale movie? That's too much. It's like, he was kind of always sort of building to that. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, it also, yeah. I do want to, one last thing before we go back into uh, the Da Vinci Code, because we are now at the hour mark, so we should probably do a plot description. Um, there was a little sidebar about how Netflix was suing Blockbuster Video to keep it uh, out of <laughs> out of the rent-by-mail business, which, uh, 2006, were we quite so innocent now that that was, uh, you know, Netflix beginning its uh, power play to take over the world. And now here we are at, I don't think Netflix is done, but, like, we are at a point in, with this recent news where, like, Netflix could be uh, in real trouble in terms of their, you know... It's a triple punch happening at once. It's everybody realizing that a large portion of their product, especially the product that they push, is junk. It's them raising their prices. And it's this like booting people for, you know, sharing household passwords. Yeah, that's not going to work out the way that they want it It's all of it happening at once. And that's why people are leaving. Yeah. Yeah, and and where it goes from here will be really interesting. All right, we should get back into the Da Vinci Code though. For uh, for as much as you hate it, and I think it's we've, just okay. we've exhausted the summer movie preview, EW print edition. Rest in peace. Yes, we love you, but we are here to uh, also talk about the Da Vinci Code, directed by Ron Howard. Written by Akiva Goldsman, from the book by Dan Brown, starring Thomas Hanks, Audrey Tatu, Ian McCullen, Paul Bettany, Alfred Molina, Jean Renault, and Jurgen Prochnow. Movie world premiered out of competition, opening the Cannes Film Festival. That is a listicle we should really do, is uh, wild movies that opened the Cannes Film Festival out of competition. Like, there's... It really is a doozy of a of of a history. Like there are some real odd choices there throughout history. They they do it less and less do that they? it's like they're not gonna open the festival. They're just gonna show out of competition, which is fine because it's like that, you know, is like it gives an air of glitz and prestige. It gets stars on the red carpet for their festival to draw attention to it, which like, you know, not that trickle-down economics are a thing, but, you know, it, it does help bring attention, a global attention to the rest of the lineup as well. Sure. Um, but, like, as far as opening the festival, it's less of a thing. All right. I believe you. I will defer to this you This year, that. they're opening with uh, Michelle Hazanavicious's Hazana uh, zombie remake movie. Sure. That, yeah. Sure. Whatever. Yes. All right. Fine. Out of competition, though. All right. Uh, and then the movie opened uh, basically worldwide on May 19th, 2006. Indeed. Joe Reed, yeah. are you ready to give a 60-second plot description of no. the Da Vinci? There's code? so much plot in this movie. I can't, like, there's, it's twice the amount of plot as in any movie. I'm going to be omitting... 40% of the plot is the New Testament. Yes, essentially. Yes. It's it's all of the Gnostic Gospels are uh, are the plot of the middle half of this movie. Yeah. Yes, I will give it my best. 
All right, then, uh, if you are ready, crack those knuckles. Your 60-second plot description of The Da Vinci Code starts now. Hey there, Da Vinci. What's it like in Vatican City? But we're not in Vatican City. We're at the Louvre in Paris, where albino murderer monk Paul Bettany is taking out members of a secret society, the Priory of Scion, in order to find a keystone, all at the behest of an unseen person known as a teacher, who appears to be after the mythical Holy Grail. The Grand Master of the Priory, before he bled out, left a message for his granddaughter Sophie, famous symbologist and famous symbologist Robert Langdon, who have to translate about eight billion symbolic messages and anagrams, leading them on a scavenger hunt through the Da Vinci's works in the Louvre and later to a safety deposit box, which contains a cryptex to which they don't seconds. know the code. Langdon then takes them to his friend, eccentric old Ian McKellen, the world's biggest Mary Magdalene stan, and like any gay man who's obsessed with a female celebrity, he thinks Mary was a flawless queen who was married to Jesus and bore his child, a truth which, if confirmed, would rattle the foundations of mankind and undermine the authority of the Catholic Church. Yes, Queen. The three go on the run, and eventually it turns out that yes, Queen Ian McKellen seconds. is the teacher who has been trying to find the tomb of Mary Magdalene, and he threatens to kill Sophie if Langdon doesn't solve the cryptex, which he does secretly, but then Jean Renault and the cops show up and drag McKellen away as he rants and raves about Rihanna's next album and Langdon and Sophie eventually follow the clues from the cryptex to Rosalind <laughs> Chapel where they discover that Sophie is in fact the last living descendant of Jesus Christ and Mary Magdalene which is pretty cool for her and then Langdon cuts himself shaving and realizes that the tomb of Mary Magdalene is actually buried beneath the inverted pyramid of the Louvre the end Ugh. you know Ian McCullen does have a great monologue in the extended version um, <laughs> about how Rihanna's next album is going to be called Bitch Better Have My Chalice. <laughs> I want Ian McKellen's character from this movie to go through all of the like Mariah Carey album covers through the years and just point out like the male and female like symbolic <laughs> images. It's just like, if you look at here, uh, the butterfly creates a V symbol. And uh, yeah, yes. Uh, that was my biggest takeaway from this. It's just like, man, like that guy's gonna go to the mat for Mary Magdalene, just like any random Twitter gay will go to the mat for Ariana Grande. Like, it's really, really funny. Uh, the yeah, he the, will really ride hard for whatever Mary Magdalene's art pop was. The director's cut of the Da Vinci Code is just Ian McKellen's character talking about how Mary Magdalene should have been cast in the Wicked movie. Um. Uh, instead of Cynthia Revo. So, yes. Uh, that's my favorite part of the movie. I know it's, again, uh, a big info dump, but uh, that to me is when it all comes alive. When they're like doing the weird little like PowerPoint presentation where they're moving the parts of The Last Supper around. I'm like, this is wild <laughs> shit. Like, this is, this is, uh, this is like, you know, Charlie Day, uh, 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 the conspiracy wall, right? It's just like, if you, if you notice here and, and if you move this around here and if you follow this invisible line there and, uh, Yes. Yeah. I, uh... It's certainly the least tepid portion of the movie. Sure. Yes. That and when it's like momentarily like you forget how like torture porn became an aesthetic. Like I was a little surprised and kind of shocked that this was a PG-13 rated movie in the scene where, you know, you have Paul Bettany BDSM gooning out. Right. Like beating himself up. Self-flagellating for, and uh, his his yeah. weird little... You know, uh, thigh cage or whatever that he's uh, again stuff that you would just find on gay Twitter. Gear Queen Paul Bettany. Yeah, exactly. You know? Exactly. Yeah, Paul Bettany is going to horse meat disco this weekend, uh, and he's turning a look. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. uh, yes, catch him at Provincetown in whatever <laughs> week um, Blood Week is. <laughs> 
<laughs> Provincetown Catholic Week at uh, at uh, at high tea. Yes, um, it'd be a sensation. Yes, so that I think. Also, the fact that in the trailer for the movie, they kind of make no bones about showing the like the corpse spread out like the Vitruvian man with the with the mm-hmm. inverted pentacle on his chest and whatnot. You're right. Like the the torture porn aesthetic. Really the trailer makes... for this movie promises a lot of violence. It does. Yes. That the movie doesn't really super deliver. Yes, I think that's right. Um, this movie well, is... a lot of the trailer is like basically the first act of the movie. Yeah. Again, to me, the most exciting scenes of this movie are Tom Hanks doing anagrams. Like, genuinely, it's very fun to me to watch him just be like, he'll literally <laughs> look at a phrase and just start like speaking all of the words that he can see in the phrase until he finds it. I'm like, this could be, this is a game show I would watch. Like, this is genuinely like you know, give somebody a word wall and just sort of have them just start speaking every word they can find until they come up with an anagram. I don't know. That was fun to me. And yet I feel like it's a movie that's weirdly just like terrified of letting people talk and have conversations because like the most maddening thing in this movie to me is these like flashback sequences that are like overlaid in a corner of the frame where you can see like pregnant ass Mary Magdalene running through like a village (laughs) or something. Yes. And it's just like, that is so lame. Yeah. No, it's (laughs) and like, he wants to be like Ron Howard wants to be Ridley Scott or something. And like, I think that's right into an epic to the point where you're like, well, how was the Da Vinci code such a fucking expensive movie? And it's like, this stuff that he has like, you know, Roman guards and sequences and like, well, and you have these like fantastic locations that the, the movie is sort of set in and it doesn't ever really seem to make the most of them, which is is an annoying thing. You've got, you know, they're going to, and I don't know how much location versus, you know, set stuff was was in the movie. Not to be... I'm pretty sure that Louvre set is a set. Yeah. Well, not, again, not to be the most pedantic person at the Q&A after, whose, like, first question is, like, how much was this filmed on location? Which is second only to um, how much of the dialogue was improvised in terms of... Uh, Questions that people at Q&As hate to answer because it's... Or as we experience together, the one that I always use as like the great example of, was the tree really set on fire? (laughs) What was that from? I can't remember. That was that uh, movie we did not like with Diane Kruger, um, In the Fade. Yes, In the Fade. I thought it was okay. It's like dramatic whatever. And then the first question was, yeah, did you set that tree on fire? Well, I mean, we'll have our great, we'll have our great symposium on all the worst questions that are asked at the Q&A because there's a lot of them, which are not, uh, not limited to just questions, but also comments, and also ones that are like, mm-hmm. I have a short film that I made about this similar subject. And, oh, God, it's the, they're all the worst. Uh, band Q&As. Anyway, um, yeah, I don't, I don't disagree with you that this is um, a, a poorly directed movie, or at least a movie that a better director would have probably found a lot more to bring out of it. Um, I don't know. I didn't you can f- imagine at least the like Sam Mendes or the like yes. Fincher version of the movie that at least allows it to be architecture porn. Yes, exactly, exactly. I would have liked that. I would have liked architecture porn. How did we like Audrey Tattoo in this? 
She's terrible. <laughs> I didn't want to say it. I didn't want to Again, say not a character. She is not playing, like, a person. But, like, the performances are bad in this movie. I don't... She's the only one who sort of stands out to me as, like, this is really falling flat, where it can't afford to fall flat. I think Hanks is fine. I think McKellen's fun. I think, you know... Everybody else is sort of not being asked to do enough to really impress me one way or the other. Even Bettany, who is such an extreme character. But, like, I don't know. I guess they're asking Bettany to do a lot of, like, pained looks and, like, you know, remember your past. Again, he grew up as Bane. Um, uh, d- drapey hood acting. Yeah, drapey hood acting. That's fine. He's he's mm-hmm, fine. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I think Tattoo's the only one where it's just like, oh, they really needed... I was trying to think of, like, did this movie... Was this movie just sort of waiting for a Marion Cotillard who didn't exist yet? Like, what was... what? <laughs> well, here's the thing about Audrey Tattoo. Like, they auditioned a bunch of actresses, and, like, it was supposed to be some big surprise that she got it, and it's like, well... I mean, for a global audience, I would understand why you would cast someone with the name recognition of, like, Amelie, you know? But, like, I don't know. I don't think she's good in Amelie, either. I mean, I... I could just be mean about her. I kind of famously don't like Amelie. And, like, I know a lot of people do. I just... That movie stresses me out in a way that... (laughs) Like, you know what I mean? It's just, like, there's... It's so manic and antic and like oh god it stresses me out ray finds hugh jackman and george clooney were all considered for the robert langdon part so there's that um let's see no ron howard always wanted audrey tattoo for the role of sophie he said liar um but she's talked about auditioning yes Um, i mean maybe she was the first choice but they still audition a bunch of the other tidbit that i'm finding here is a french president at the time jacques chirac uh suggested that his daughter's best friend be cast as sophie niveau (laughs) which is funny (laughs) would you like that tax break yeah exactly you should cast my daughter's friend oh here we go okay julie delpy and kate beckinsale were two of the original people thought of for the role of sophie delpy wanted the role badly and lobbied for it but she was ultimately turned down Delpy would have been interesting. Why would Julie Delpy want that part. It's. I imagine it was a pretty sought after part. So, yeah, money. Yeah, uh, you you mean everybody wants to be the de- last descendant of Jesus? <laughs> okay, so it's it's weird the way this movie decides to end. I don't think this movie knows what the ultimate gag of this movie is because. Right, because, like, the action of the movie ends, and there's a half hour. (laughs) Right. All of a sudden, McKellen is dragged away, again, ranting and raving, kicking and screaming. My favorite McKellen moment is actually when they're at his house and he's doing the PowerPoint presentation, and he first mentions Mary Magdalene, and Audrey Tattoo's character goes, the prostitute? And he, like, rounds on her and is like, no! Like, she was much... (laughs) She was never a prostitute. It's only the Catholic Church has told you that. Which, again, me, um, you know... As if, like, Audrey Tattoo outed herself as a Swifty or something. Exactly. And then, like, you know, his, his sleeper cell activation like 
jumped in and was like, this is a battle between standums. Yes. This is when you this is when you make the mistake of being like, Rihanna doesn't write her own songs. And you're just like, boom, like you have fucked up now, friend. <laughs> um Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But anyway, um Yeah, so they get to the part where McKellen is dragged away and you're like, okay. And they don't really there's not really a ton of motivation for why Langdon and Sophie keep following the clues. Like, they're not psychotic about figuring out where the tomb of Mary Magdalene is, but they all of a sudden decide that they need to, like, keep going to figure this out. So they, like, travel out into the countryside and find this chapel, and in the basement of this chapel is all of, like, press clippings about Sophie's childhood or whatever, where they find out that... uh that she is the living descendant of Jesus and Mary. And then the movie keeps going. They like have this like denouement or whatever. And like, you know, they uh, part and, you know, friendly and basically just like avoid the question of like, so what do we do with this information where it's just like, are we going to tell people about this? And they're like, eh, maybe like, who knows? I don't know. And, then he goes back to well, and then he manipulates her. He was like, "Would you, would you, blah blah blah, come out, or would you love the religion so yeah. much right. that you would not dismantle it?" And it's like, okay. But ultimately, here's the problem: is ultimately Sophie doesn't give a shit. Like Sophie doesn't care one way or the other right. about this. So what? This information being in her hands doesn't really make a ton of difference. He can just like with a very kind of mild conversation convince her to just be like or just like do nothing, whatever. And she's like, "Cool, I'll do that then." And it's just <laughs> to like me, the more convincing argument would have been, "You can either come forward and say that you are the last descendant of Jesus Christ and Mary Magdalene, or you can save yourself a lot of heartache of the entire world saying, "Look at this crazy." Yeah, woman. yeah, or yeah, you can you can uh, come forward and become, you know, the most famous person on the planet. Or you can live your life in relative calm and anonymity forever. And she's like, yeah, second one. I'll do that second one. Um, that sounds great, yeah. But this is where I also get kind of Thanos is right about the Ian McKellen character. Where I'm like, he's not wrong to be like, if this thing is true, we should tell people it's true. And also, you know, crumble the corrupt catholic church to the ground he's like that sounds fine and i'm like yeah like that doesn't sound like you know the wrong thing and so uh anyway i'm going to be breaking his character out of jail uh next weekend if you want to join poor miss lee teabing is going to lose his mind when he realizes that he like he who stands mary magdalene so much was in the presence of her progeny i know he's going to freak out and lose his mind i couldn't stop thinking about that this is what was the also um, his character name is dr lee teabing you can just feel dan brown making that up one syllable at a time of what he thinks a british person is i watched the i watched this with closed captions on and every single time someone said teabing I absolutely read teabag and and kind of giggled to myself. <laughs> Teabagging. 
Uh, yeah, Lee Tee Bagging. That was definitely like the Mad Magazine spoof of the hundred uh, percent Da Vinci Code. Lee Tee Bagging. But the fact yeah. that you you mentioned that he's in the same room as uh, as Mary Magdalene's descendant and didn't know it. What was the Drag Race season one episode where they had to interview um, uh, Cher's mother? And or maybe it wasn't season. That one. is like season. That's like season six. Is it? Well, whenever. But wasn't the one talking yeah. head where somebody was like, they were like, I just wanted to ask her. Like, share came out of you. <laughs> and that, I was like, I that's believe so- that's Jocelyn Fox. Yes, who's yeah, like, share yeah, yeah. came out of your vagina. Yes. <laughs> yes. And Trinity K. Bonet keeps calling Chaz Bono Chad. Oh my god, that's right. It was season six. <laughs> season one, they did uh, they did the fake uh, talk show, but it wasn't with any celebrity. Or maybe it was. I don't know. Lord knows. Um, all those seasons are running together in my old brain. All right, anyway, back to the Da Vinci Code. All 2,000 uh, of them, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Wild with Anne. Do you want to take a stab at the with Anne? Did you notice it? No, I didn't, because the second that the credits started, I um, turned the movie off. Um, is it with Jesus Christ and Mary Magdalene? <laughs> yes. Yeah, they lobbied to, for Mary Magdalene to get the prestigious uh, and credit. Um, no, it is not with Jesus Christ and Mary Magdalene. It's with Paul Bettany and Jean Renault, which to me is is wild <laughs> only in a ron howard movie um i guess yeah like I, sure i mean paul bettany actually isn't in the movie that much so the width for him yes makes no it's the and jean renault that i'm mostly talking about it's just like it's <laughs> a character who should be fully excised from the movie we don't like this yeah, character to fo- not fully but like this character could have been an Interpol bulletin, is essentially, like, what I feel like that character, <laughs> like, yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Can we also talk about Paul Bettany being in essentially every Ron Howard movie for a stretch? And, like, yeah, always putting him in this, like, weird shit. Like, do you ever imagine if Paul Bettany, like, gets the call from Ron? Like, hey, we're making the Da Vinci Code. Ooh, cool. Am I going to be Robert Langdon? No, we're going to make you be this guy who beats himself. Uh, okay. Uh, a beautiful mind. Oh, am I going to be the, like, uh, rocket scientist or whatever? No, you're going to be a, his imaginary friend. Yeah, that's fair. Um, yeah, let let Paul Bettany be your be your lead actor, uh, uh, Ron Howard. Like, what the fuck? What's going on here? Yeah. Yeah. Why didn't you cast him as Mama? <laughs> Shut the. <up>. So stupid. <laughs> this was. Um, I mean, go ahead. No, I was I was just gonna make another Mama joke. Okay. We have we have more Ron Howard to talk about too. I don't want to like go fully into Ron Howard. This was when he was about, when Bettany was about to enter his uh, chaotic decade of the teens, where he finds his sort of biggest foot in the door to lasting financial success, where he's cast as just initially the voice of Jarvis in the first Iron Man movie in 2008, which who could have expected the untold uh, riches that that could end up reaping for him in his career like genuinely this is a the the lasting lesson for actors of don't turn down that role just because it's not big enough for you it's just like oh just a voiceover in this big blockbuster movie like fuck you like no 
Many actors may have said <laughs> fuck you, and Paul Bettany didn't, and now he's a gabajillionaire. Like, there's just good for him. But then he also embarked upon this odd little era where he kept playing, like, angels and supernatural, like, men of God, which, like, it does feel like his casting in the Da Vinci Code is a big reason why he gets Legion and Priest and, uh, I think there's, like, one other one among that, like, genre of movie for him. Um, He's a real, it's a real interesting career for him from this point on, I would say. What are your favorite Bettany roles? What Seems are your... like a cool guy. Well, except for that he's friends with Johnny Depp and is in court transcripts right. about all of that, which um, don't love. What are your favorite Bettany performances, though? Like, what are your Bettany five? Oh, Master and Commander, no question. Interesting. Okay. I gotta watch that movie You're again. not I... a Master and Commander person, right? No, but I only saw it the once the year that it came out, and I thought it was good, but, like, I didn't freak out about it or anything like that, but, um, I don't know. It's also not, it's not really in my type of movie that's gonna make me freak out. I don't tend to flip for movies of that kind, so it's, like, I don't really anticipate watching it again and, like, flipping out about it. My fave Bettany's are I love him in Dogville. He's such a piece of shit in Dogville, and I love him. Um, what else? There's another one sort of more recently where I'm just like, oh, I think he's fantastic. Oh, um, Solo, actually. He should be actually, playing Dirtbags, though. Like, Solo sucks. Uh, again, he is in Solo. Um, yeah. Where it's like, <laughs> Ron Howard calls him up, hey, you want to be in Solo? Cool, yeah. do I get to be Han Solo? No, you're the lame bad guy. <laughs> no, he's the good, he's he's the best part of that movie. I genuinely feel like Paul Bettany is the is the one really good, interesting part of that movie. He's essentially playing um, the, he and late era Jude Law, I feel like, have the same kind of uh, vibe. And like, that's a role yeah. I could see, like, that's essentially the role that, uh, that uh, a role that Jude Law would have uh, would have knocked out of the park, but I think Bettany does it very very well. That's the one part of a very disappointing movie that I actually really liked. Um, I like him in those. And one of the things that uh, Ron Howard actually brought to that movie too, because it was originally Michael K. Williams. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't realize that. Mm-hmm. Um, I like him in Priest and Legion, even though those movies are a little bit less than shit. what they promise. I don't I don't know if I would say pieces of shit, but like I I wanted more from them that I ended up getting. They're junk, but like I wanted much more fun junk. I also You think wanted Constantine from those movies. A, that's exactly what I wanted was Constantine. Um I also do think he's quite a lot of fun in a Knight's Tale. And I know that a Knight's Tale sometimes feels like it's bashing you over the head to think that he's fun in that movie, but I think he lives up to the bashing if that makes sense. And then, yeah, Master and Commander probably does make my five, even though it's not, like, my super fave. But I think Dogville is my number one, Bettany. And A Beautiful Mind, he's the one who's not there, right? Right. Yeah. Imaginary friend. And Ed Harris is, or is also not there? Also not there. The CIA is also his imaginary friend. Right. The whole And the little the girl CIA. is also not there. <laughs> Jennifer Connelly is there. Yes. Josh Lucas is there. That'd be a fun game, actually. Who is and is not real in A Beautiful Mind? I would do terribly. (laughs) 
Um, Paul Bettany, Little Girl, Josh Lucas. Right. The same year as The Da Vinci Code, he is in uh, that Harrison Ford movie, Firewall, where he actually gets second billing above the title in that. It's Harrison Ford Mm -hmm. and Paul Bettany. I imagine he's the bad guy. Or something like it. That or was he's like I remember the Tommy Lee Jones in this movie. I remember that being Virginia Madsen's follow up to Sideways, her Oscar nomination for Sideways. She was in was it a haunting in Connecticut she's in? It was like yes, the, I, a haunting in Connecticut and that were the follow ups and it was like, Oh man, exactly. we're really not gonna make it happen for Virginia Madsen. Exactly. And it was so apparent immediately and it sucked. Yep. That's exactly what I was going to say. It was such a bummer where it was just like, oh, she's going back to playing thankless wife roles and uh, and junkie horror. It's just like, ah, oh, fuck. God damn it. Uh, I, I want to talk about this movie in relationship to Oscar because this is the one that maybe oh, yeah, got yeah, us yeah. a little more. We've talked yes. about this yes. in terms of like, yes. um, you know, this miniseries where we're stretching it a little bit to do the theme that we want. However, Da Vinci Goat is the one that people are pointing at the most. And I actually think this one is, uh, I mean, obviously, like, it's a caveat. This was not a best picture player in any way. Right. It's not an acting player in any way. But, like, this was conceivably close to some type of craft nomination. Like, it was recognized by the Art Directors Guild, Sound Editors Guild, Visual Effects uh, Guild or Society, whatever they call themselves. And, like, it had some precursors for original score for Hans Zimmer. How did you feel about this Hans Zimmer score? There were a couple moments where I was like, where I was like, oh, Hans Zimmer's uh, enjoying the space here. Like, Hans Zimmer's really having a good time. Mostly towards the end, but... um it didn't really jump out at me as like one of the great Zimmers. Was that his Globe nomination? Right. Yes, he got Globe nominated for that. Globe yeah. nominated, Critics' Choice nominated. Interesting. Okay. All right. So, Joseph, for you, I've created a little bit of a game that All maybe right. you will ace this game immediately, but <sighs> I've tried to gamify it in a way of the way we can maybe do this with future people uh, for further episodes who have like long oscar histories uh-huh. um i tried to make it gamified for you like the way that box office game is online and like some of the wordles and such i'm going to task you to guess all of hans zimmer's oscar nominations <gasps> you there will be a sequence of hints if you need them okay i will give I love you this. the year the year of the movie Next clue will be the amount of nominations that the movie had. Okay. Next clue will be the wins. And if you can't get it from there, I will start giving you the categories of the nomination. All right. Can you start me off with how how many are there? I'll give you the categories that the movie won. Okay. All right. And say the movie didn't win any, then I will give you the nominations. Okay. How many are we talking about? How many nominations are we talking about? How many nominations? Hold on one second. All right. 12 nominations. Okay. So, right off the bat, here, let me bring out a pad and a piece of paper. Whichever ones you can get off the top of your head, we don't have to go through those, but, like, maybe to fill the time, I will, you know, get those clues. Okay. Dune, he won for. Dune, correct. Dune won. Uh, it's at the bottom of my sheet. <laughs> Dune, correct, from the year 2021, nominated for 10 awards, won six of them. Right, all right. Not listing all six, including Hans Zimmer. 
Uh, he also won for The Lion King. The Lion King, correct, nominated for four, won two. <laughs> it only won two because it was nominated for three, an original song. Uh, but those are his two Oscar wins. Right. Correct. He was, I'm pretty sure, nominated for Rain Man. Rain Man, correct, nominated in 1988 for eight Oscars, won four. Rain Man is his first nomination. This is a score that gets borrowed from a lot, so I imagine it was a nominee. Uh, the Thin Red Line. The Thin Red Line, correct, nominated for eight, one, or seven, and one zero in 1998. All right. Um, another one I listen to a ton, I think is so good, uh, is Inception. Inception, correct. Inception was nominated in 20... Uh, ten for eight Oscars, and it won four of them. Um, sorry, one second. You have five of his twelve nominations so far, including both of his wins. Okay. Um, was he nominated for Crimson Peak? He was not nominated. Or for not Crimson Peak, Peak, Crimson Tide. Uh, idiot. Uh, Crimson Peak is not. Uh... <laughs> he was not nominated for Crimson Tide. Okay, either. that's fucking bullshit because that's such an amazing score. All right. <laughs> um, Crimson Peak. That's funny. Uh, all right. So not Crimson Tide. Um, was he nominated for Batman Begins? No, he was not. Okay, so since you've gotten two of them wrong, I'm right. going to start you yeah. on his most recent nomination after Dune, which is the most recent nomination that you've gotten. So we're going to go backwards through his filmography. All right. Uh, this is movie is from 2018. All right. Um, 1917? Uh, you got your year wrong. Oh, wait, what year? 2018. 2018. Right. Um... 2018 best original score uh give me another hint nominated for eight academy awards okay so we're looking at probably a best picture nominee it wasn't black panther it wasn't roma it wasn't irishman roma was not a score nominee right um, no, I'm just trying to go through, like, how many movies were big enough to... Oh, have movies that would have gotten eight nominations. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um. Dang. Um. It won three Oscars. It won... Give you your next clip. Three. Oh. No, that wasn't the right year. No. 2018, eight nominations, three wins. Do you want the categories it won in yet? Well, wait, all right, so I'm going to guess one that might not be this one, but I think it's one and another one is Dunkirk. But I think that's 17. It's Dunkirk. Oh, this is, okay, I don't know why I thought Dunkirk was 17. Okay, all right, Dunkirk. Yeah, Dunkirk, I feel like part of the reason why Dunkirk, I mean, Dunkirk didn't not do well. It won three Oscars, but, like, yeah. I think Dunkirk would have been a bigger Oscar movie in a different year with, like, less competition. I think that's right. Okay, all right. All right, your next movie is 2014. Interstellar. Interstellar, correct. 
moving backwards, the next word would have been Inception. You got that. So your next Hans Zimmer nomination is 2009. All right. Well, there's no Nolan movie there for me to default to. Um, <laughs> 2009. I don't think he did. Wait. He didn't. Do... No. Avatar was somebody else. That, I believe, was uh, James Horner. Yes, of course it was. Of course it was. Um, 2009. Give me another clue. How many nominations total? It is nominated for two Academy Awards. Shoot. Okay. Oh, nine. I'm going to need another hint. This one, I think, is one of the hardest ones. Uh, It won zero. I'm (laughs) guessing you would have guessed that. So I will give you the uh, categories it was nominated in. Best Art Direction and, obviously, Best Original Score. Hmm. Oh, I don't know. Uh, It wasn't Avatar, but it was its box office competition. In 09. At the end of 09. Well, Star Trek was summer. Originally perceived to be its box office competition, I will say. Oh, man. I don't know. Perhaps even mentioned in a Globe's winning speech. (laughs) From that year? Um, Um... I believe the line used was Avatar was going to take us to the cleaners. Oh, oh, um. Is it Sherlock Holmes? Sherlock Holmes. That's right. God. Hans Zimmer nominated for Sherlock Holmes. All right, all right, all right, all right. Uh, your next one is in 2000. Oh, Gladiator. 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 <laughs> All right. The uh, next one back would have been uh, The Thin Red Line. So now we are looking at 1998, the same year as The Thin Red Line. Right. Um, nominee. I can't imagine he had a comedy score in there, but uh, otherwise he would have had to have been nominated against himself. 98. How many total nominations did this movie get? Uh, it received two. Huh. What was the other category? Uh, it won the other category. Oh. It's an Oscar winner. 19- Nominated for two, won one. All right. Not Life is Beautiful. Not <laughs> Affliction. Not... The Truman Show. Um, 98, 98, 98. You did a thing that you really love to do, and you said, well, it's probably not this, and it is this. Oh, what? Um, it's a musical or comedy score. Oh, I see, I see, I see. Um, that he got. God, that's won, so atypical One other category opposite his musical or comedy nomination. It won. Oh, so music. So. Uh, I'm so mad. What was the song winner that year? Prince of Egypt. 
Yes, the Prince of Egypt. All right, okay. When You Believe. We basically did a whole episode about When You Believe. Good song. Of his gods and kings. And kings. Uh, Good song. All right, what else? All right, next uh, year, it is 1997. Okay, 97 score nominees. Um, not Titanic. I doubt it's any of the Best Picture nominees. 97. I don't think Men in Black. That doesn't sound like a Zimmer thing. How many total nominations? I think Men in Black is Danny Elfman. Yeah, that's that sounds more right. Um, how many total nominations does this movie get? Seven. Oh, okay. Seven. Seven. Wild. Seven Oscar nominations in 1997. 1997. Okay. So that puts it like one of the top nominations of the year. Top nominated movies of the year. Obviously, Titanic had oh so many. Think about the score nominations in this era. Is it another musical or comedy? Perhaps. Is it like as good as it gets? That'd be weird. As good as it gets. Get the fuck out of here. That's him? Yeah. That's insane. It does not sound like Hans Zimmer whatsoever. Not at all. Not at all. Oh my god. It's like a clarinet score. (laughs) Yes, it is. (laughs) Crazy. All right, we're on to the uh, last Hans Zimmer nomination that you haven't guessed yet. All it's right. from 1996. 96. Um, I don't think it's... Wait, is it Legends of the Fall? It is not Legends of the Fall. That's that's Thomas Newman, maybe. Um, that sounds right. Yeah. I will also say it is this movie's only Oscar nomination, the only time that that is true for Hans Zimmer. All right. Great. Only nomination. Is it in dramatic score? No. It is. uh, It did not win, obviously, and it was musical or comedy score. I I'm sure there's some type of eligibility thing of like it has to be written explicitly for the movie, but I I just want to come forward and say it's uh, bullshit. This is not an original song nominee. Oh. 96 should have been original song nominee. Um, William Shakespeare's Romeo... No, that had other nominations. No, that's uh, Art Direction. That uh, yeah. I think it's only nominated for Art Direction. Yeah, okay. And also not a musical or comedy. I guess you could call it a musical if you really stretched the boundaries of that definition. Um, 96. Songs that should have been nominated in 1996. That was the year that Madonna won, or whatever, Andrew Lloyd Webber won for the Evita song. Celine Dion should have won for Diane Warren, or Diane Warren should have won for a Celine Dion song, rather. Um, what genre of song? Like adult contempo? Like Adult contemporary, I, I, I'll give you the biggest hint. The performer of the song was second build in the movie. Oh. First Whitney build Houston, is one of the preacher's wife. Whitney the Houston preacher's, preacher's wife. wife. 
yeah. Okay. 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 That also is wild that that's a Hans Zimmer score. His career is so fascinating to me. Genuinely His so fascinating. His Oscar trajectory is really fascinating to me, too, because, like, yeah. you mentioned... Gets it first off the bat. Yeah, with Rain Man. With Rain Man, which, like, is the typical, like, Oscar frontrunner, is what gets, like, some of these, like, craftspeople in the door of, like, being in, like, the Oscar wheelhouse, isn't in the Oscar wheelhouse for several more years, and, like, doesn't really become, like, the Hans Zimmer is, like, nominated for, like, you know, the big Hans Zimmer score until, like, Thin Red Line, right? Or Gladiator, you know? Right, yeah, those two sort of back-to-back, yeah. Because, like, he had, like, all those... I imagine he did a bunch of Tony Scott movies back in the early 90s. I know he did Days of Thunder, because I just watched that the other day. Uh, What a piece of shit movie that is. Um, (laughs) Wait, now I'm bringing him up to look at his early 90s stuff. Yeah, like, Backdraft, I imagine. Thelma and Louise, of course, like, that's Ridley Scott. But, like, um, that's a hugely recognizable score. Like, if you hear like snippets from that like you'll get that right away um true romance another like that was sort of his which is why but then again you'll throw in look at this other stuff he did cool runnings he did a league of their own he did um uh something to talk about he did muppet treasure island it's a really eclectic uh smell a sense of snow god what a career a sense of no snow <laughs> <laughs> when you don't like that movie, you say it's smell a sense of no. Um, <laughs> all right. What else about the Da Vinci Code? Anything else from the EW cover issue that we didn't talk about? I kind of wanted to talk about how Ron Howard and Tom Hanks like really try... Like, First of all, it's not that long of an interview. I was kind of surprised for a cover for it to yes. not be... Like, uh, this is no offense to the writer, but, like, not to be that substantive of an interview. Like, they clearly, yeah. like, had ten minutes with them while they're yeah. on a lunch break. And, like, yep. Hanks tries to, like, crack some jokes and such, but, like, it's not that much. But, like, the biggest thing of, that I kind of took away from it is how much of, like, it seems like an intentional talking point that they are both downplaying the potential for controversy for the movie and the yeah. potential of like Catholics that, and Christians to be upset by the movie. That seemed to be sort of foremost in their mind was this sense of uh, controversy. And I, I guess because it was two years after the passion of the Christ, which was such a controversial movie about, you mm-hmm. know, within organized religion in that way, that maybe that was sort of front of their mind, even though, controversy did not exactly seem to be a problem for the passion of the Christ, which made so much more money than it had any right to. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, I can see where a studio movie like the Da Vinci code, you're, you're trying to be as risk averse as possible. You've got this, you know, billion dollar property on your hands with this book. That was such a huge success. The last thing you want to do is have a, you know, religious boycott, eat into your box office so they're trying to play it as nice as possible i can see why catholic groups which are famously uh, prone to protesting things like obviously they went out uh, and protested this thing which essentially would have had a bunch of people <laughs> running out into the streets being like the church is bullshit a movie told me so 
I mean, yeah. and like it doesn't really seem like it kept people from seeing it here in the states, and like no. you would think maybe it would be more of a like global issue. They're worried about their global box office, but this is a movie that made three quarters of a billion dollars at like the global box office. So Ron Howard can't set foot in Rome anymore. Um, <laughs> Pope Pope would have been Pope Benedict maybe at the time, right? Uh, uh, Tom Hanks has been condemned, but that's really just for the haircut. It's not (laughs) otherwise in the movie. (laughs) Well, it's funny because you look at a movie like this and the site, especially at the beginning, the site of sort of uh, religious people skulking behind the scenes, running through these like big, uh, you know, architecture, whatever, up to no good, immediately made me think of The Godfather Part 3, which... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> is kind of much more prone to controversy from prone to boycott from Catholics, which is essentially they're basically being like, well, the Catholic church is in bed with the mob. We all know this, like that kind of thing. Um, whereas this seems like much more obviously fantasy historical fiction um, the, or at the very least, the church could very easily just like pass it off and just be like, this is fiction. This is nothing. This is no basis in reality. Just um, like the tonal schlockiness of this movie, I think also from an audience perspective, prevents people from getting offended too. Like it, it's yeah. so easily consumed as just like popcorn junk, right? Yeah. 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 Totally. Uh, yeah. I don't know. It was, it's junky. It's super junky. Um, it's too long, but I didn't have <laughs> the worst time with it. Long. It's way too long. It's very too I did watch it over the span of two days. I watched it a little bit last night and a little bit this morning. So maybe that helped me. I genuinely cannot imagine how there is another half hour in the extended version of this movie. Like, what do they do? Do they explain more stuff? Do they talk more about Da Vinci? Like, what I don't know. Any listeners... Do? Listeners who have seen the director's cut, perhaps by uh, uh, accident. Against your perhaps, will. Right. Yeah. Perhaps yeah. Uh, Opus Day captured you and made you watch it. Um, let us know. You've not seen any of the sequels, have you? I imagine. I didn't. Uh, Angels and Demons, which was like at least better or worse. Here. I mean, okay. I would maybe say more entertaining, not good, but maybe more entertaining because that's like, the one with you and McGregor. It leans into its trashiness. I read the plot description. This it sounds more like a Bond movie, where that's the one with it's like there's antimatter in the plot, and I'm like, oh, this sounds like a Bond movie. Were well, they trying like, to turn Robert Langdon into like a Jack Ryan? James Bond kind of like sort of like I mean you can feel them trying to do it in this movie because a they had a car chase just one yeah just one it's like you could totally cut it out of the movie and then you have shirtless Tom Hanks who's actually looking kind of studly in this movie this is the post castaway years where it's like right oh Tom Hanks is going to get a, a not jacked but like you know he's gonna fitten up a little bit what's interesting here's something that's interesting to me and you can speak more to this because i think you've seen this movie and i haven't still oh i thought um, you were gonna say you can speak more to this because you're thirstier for tom hanks than i oh no i'm 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 I've, i'm that I'm is indeed true though, that I, I i i would own up to that yeah uh no this I, I for some reason thought national treasure came after this movie but national treasure comes two years before this movie national treasure yes. i feel like 
did a better job of doing, at least like within the culture, um, of doing the junky conspiracy. Um, these historical artifacts are more than what they seem. Uh, Illuminati is real. Uh, look very closely at your dollar bill and you'll find a pyramid, like that kind of a thing. Um, better than the Da Vinci Code, which I think succeeded as a book, obviously better than it succeeded as a movie. Whereas I think the National Treasure movies, when you think about the idea of somebody getting really deep into conspiracy theories at like uh, a museum or whatever, you more mm-hmm. think of National Treasure, I think, than you do of the Da Vinci Code. National Treasure is so fun. I need to see the second one. Even not having seen the second one, I would absolutely go to bat for a third National Treasure movie. Don't we all I should, want that? After I do my weekend where I watch both of the Souvenir movies, I should do a weekend where I watch both of the National Treasure movies. That sounds just amazing. For the, I will join you. Just for the uh, the whiplash of it. The cultural whiplash <laughs> of it. If you can right. get a hold of the second souvenir movie, I don't think it's even rentable yet. It's crazy. Eh, it will be. It will be soon. Whatever. Um, I'm not stressing. Okay. Should we do anything? Talk about anything else before the IMDb game? Uh, nope. I think that is it for me. Um. Oh, here's the one thing I wanted to say, and we don't have to talk about it very much. Uh, okay. well, two things. Okay. The the bit of hokum where they, as he's talking about the history of the Knights Templar, um described the origin of friday the 13th as a superstitious day was hilarious to me that was very very (laughs) funny to me and it was um and i immediately went to wikipedia to look it up and make sure that it wasn't true and it wasn't true of course um uh but i thought that was very funny to me this was a very wikipedia Wikipedia being the the great arbiter of truth right of course every 10 seconds in this movie i literally i my wikipedia search history from last night is like priory of scion knights templar opus day friday the 13th like all of this shit like Catholic looking church up, is going to issue a hit on you yeah 100 percent. like my local bishop is already on his way to like uh assassinate me yeah um no but the other thing i wanted to say is this movie has a smart car chase which 2006 is like the one time in history <laughs> where you would ever have a car chase in a movie with a smart car. And I was like, what a great moment. Cause it looks so stupid. It looks silly, but also this movie I does like take cars, advantage though. of the fact that if you are having a car chase with smart cars, you can get through ever narrower, uh, escapes, right? Like that's the advantage <laughs> of having a car chase with teeny tiny little buggies like smart cars. Um, but I enjoyed that. I thought that was fun. Anyway, I'll just end with a question. Does the extended version (laughs) of this movie have a scene clarifying that when... Does Ian McCollin clarify that his standum of Mary Magdalene, is it Rooney Mara as Mary Magdalene? He stands that Mary Magdalene (laughs) smoking photo. That character, Lee Teabagging, (laughs) is the only person who has seen the uh the garth davis's garth mary davis magdalene. mary magdalene movie yes 100 percent true 100 percent uh yes uh should we, we move on to it. the imtb game yes we should would you like to explain the imtb game would you like to inject whatever history of conspiracy theories and symbology right. of the imtb game 
Well, if you look very closely at The Last Supper, you will see that they are playing uh, the IMDb game. Every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game, where we challenge each other with an actor, actress, religious figure, or anagram to try and guess the top four titles that IMDb says they're most known for. If any of those titles are television, voice-only performances, or non-acting credits, we mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue, and if that is not enough, then we tie a chain around our thigh and uh exsanguinate blood uh to atone for failure and then we get a free for all hits fantastic would you like to give her guess first i'll give first who do you so i went into uh the various sequels to the da vinci code one of which was inferno which neither one of us i believe have seen uh playing a character in that film named bertrand zobrist is one (laughs) pause for laughter uh is one ben foster who we have never done oh ben foster who we're going to have to talk about in the f cinema scores for lost souls oh no that's ben the wrong oh i'm thinking of the wrong bet oh okay this actually might be easier you're thinking of ben chaplin and lost souls yeah now we ben can chaplin say, would uh, be really hard they've announced it on twitter so we can say that we're going to be on screen drafts doing uh the f cinema scores with our friends from the mixed reviews uh gavin and louis so we are very excited about that coming soon this summer um, all right ben foster leave no trace yes leave no trace Got a ton of... um, Is there television? No. Okay. What Um, would you have thought of for television? I don't know. I just think he's someone who probably is on television. Um, I don't think so. I don't think he's done very television. Very much television. Two episodes of My Name is Earl. He was on Six Feet Under for a while. That is true. He was Mm -hmm. Claire's problematic gay boyfriend for a while there on Six Feet Under. (laughs) X2. Uh, no, he's not in that one. Isn't he the angel? Yeah, it's that's X-Men The Last Stand. That's the one from 2006. Oh, okay, um, X-Men Last Stand, then. No. I'm oh, only going to give count that as one wrong answer for you. Wait, he is it a different actor in both movies? No, the angel isn't in uh, X2. I thought the angel was the one in the second one that's like the obvious gay metaphor... No, that's um, uh, Pyro. That's Aaron Stanford's character. Oh. Well, and also they do, like, Iceman's parents react to him as if he's coming out of the closet. There's, the gay metaphor is, is, no, X-Men 3 is the, is the um, uh, conversion therapy metaphor with Ben Foster, where they, uh, he gets the, he gets the vaccine, essentially, that cures him of being a mutant. The, gay the original anti-vax movie, uh, Brett Ratner's X-Men The Last <laughs> Yeah, anti-vax people are anti-vax until they discover that there's a vaccine against gayness. They would be all about it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, um, uh, okay. Um, 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 Hell or High Water. Yes, Hell or High Water. Hell or High Water. Your my, f- my favorite joke that I've ever made on Twitter, DHL. ever. To Tyler Perry's Hell or High Water. Um... um 310 to Yuma, which has shown up, I think, for, like, Christian Bale before. You're correct. He also fucking rules in 310 to Yuma. He's such a little freaking weirdo. I love him so much in that movie. 
Okay, so I just have one more. One more, you have one strike. Yeah. It sure as shit ain't Inferno. What's he (laughs) doing in that movie? It's a good question. Maybe I'll watch Inferno. Um, Is it like The Messenger? It is The Messenger. Very good. Yeah, good job, me. well done. Good job, you. Alrighty. Um, so for you, I did something a little different. I chose Ron Howard's original uh, choice for Robert Langdon, the dearly departed Bill Paxton. Oh, okay. All right. So, Titanic. Incorrect. Fuck off. <laughs> Get out of here. Oh, I hate this already. Titanic didn't show up for somebody else, too. Was it, like, Kathy Bates? I don't know. But Kathy Bates at least has, like, a bunch of leading actress credits or whatever. Bill Paxton should have Titanic. All right, Twister. 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 It's a Twister. It's a a Twister. Okay, but see, this is the problem, is if he's not in... He doesn't have Titanic... What are his other supporting credits in James Cameron slash Catherine Bigelow movies uh, that he's not going to show up in? I don't know. I don't know, Margo. <laughs> Why is the carpet wet, Todd? I don't know, Margo. Okay. Um, I'm just going to... True lies. Incorrect. I'm so sorry. Fuck off. <laughs> He is really funny in True Lies. Uh, your years are 1986, 1995, and 2001. All right, 86 is the other Cameron movie that I was going to guess is the Aliens. Aliens, correct. What are the other years? 95 and 2001. 95 and it's not True Lies. Go right to hell. Okay. Uh, and 2001. Is 2001 Frailty? It is Frailty, which Good. he also directed. Good. I've been saying for years I need to rewatch that movie because I remember it being scary as fuck and really It good. is scary. Frailty rules. Frailty's a really good movie. Yeah. Yeah, I want to um, rewatch it. All right. 95 and it's not true lies. What else would he have been in that year? Bill Paxton. Perhaps a reason why Ron Howard uh, said he wanted to cast him. All uh, right. In 1995. In... Oh, of course. Oh, I'm so stupid. He's in Apollo 13. Apollo 13. Apollo 13. All right. I did better at that than I thought I was going to do after. Bill Paxson's in a lot of movies. Striking out so quickly. Yeah, Bill Paxson's in a lot of movies. He was in a lot of movies. May he rest. Um,. Now Bill Pullman stands alone. All right. <laughs> All right. That's our episode. If you guys want more This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thisheadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow us on Twitter at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Joe, where can our listeners find more of you? Uh, you can find me below the inverted pyramid in the Louvre, uh, chilling <laughs> with the tomb of Mary Magdalene. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at Joe Reed, Reed spelled R-E-I-D. You can find me on Letterboxd, uh, Joe Reed spelled the same way. 
And I am also on Twitter and Letterboxd at Chris File. That's F-E-I-L. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mebius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate, like, review us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get your podcasts. Uh, y- you know, conspiracy theorists, forums, uh, etc. <laughs> Five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility. So form an Illuminati-like cult around how much you love us, but uh, start it all with a nice review. That's all for this week. We hope you'll be back next week for more buzz, more entertainment weekly, and uh, it's the fall movie preview episode coming up. Get ready. You'll be.